Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. Uh, I'm glad you're here with us. My name is Michael. I am the lead pastor here, and you are with us in a series in the Gospel of Luke. And uh, we're right in the middle of the book. Uh, I think this is week 53, week 53 in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, just, just so you know, we're going to finish this up in August. So we'll, we'll be in Luke till all through the summer, and as we get to the end of August, we'll We'll finish up the book and then switch over to something different uh, right around Labor Day. Um, but right now we're in the middle of a teaching block. Um, well, actually, it's not. It's past the teaching block. It's a story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. That's where we are today. Um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, it's about a month ago, I guess. We were in Luke 18, where Jesus encountered the rich young ruler, and the rich young ruler in that story, if you recall, he was not justified because he would not forsake his idol of money, right? Um, so the rich young ruler, he was an upright man. He kept the Ten Commandments, but his pride and self-righteousness and his greed kept him out of the kingdom of God. We're going to be in Luke 19 today, and this story functions as a bit of a counterpoint to the rich young ruler. Uh, Zacchaeus is a, um, also a rich man, and the thing that Jesus told the rich young ruler to do uh, and he did not do, is the thing that Zacchaeus did, or at least some, some version of it. And Jesus declares to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house. So Zacchaeus humbled himself as a tax collector, and through his faith and repentance, he entered the kingdom of God, and Jesus affirmed that. Jesus said, salvation has come to this house. That's what we're looking at today. So if you want to grab your Bible, we're in Luke 19, and we'll dig in. Luke 19... We'll do um, three little batches of verses here, starting in verse 1 through 4. He, referring to Jesus, he entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. So we'll pause here. Zacchaeus was a rich man. Not only was he a rich man, he was a tax collector. And not only was he a tax collector, it says he was the chief tax collector. So if you can imagine there's a world full of sinners, well, he is a sinner among sinners. He would have been thought just to be like a very, like tax collectors were already the worst. They were the scum of society. But this guy was the chief tax collector. So he was, this was and this is the only time in the New Testament where somebody is called a chief tax collector. I mentioned before in the story of the rich young ruler in Luke 18, verse 25, Jesus was speaking to the rich young ruler and told him it is, or he told the disciples after the rich young ruler uh, conversation, he said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Remember that? And then the disciples were kind of flabbergasted at that, and they said, well, who then can be saved? Jesus responds to them, what is impossible with man is possible with God. This story of Zacchaeus, we're about to see that very thing take place. A rich man is going to enter the kingdom of God. A rich man, his faith and repentance is going to be uh, on display here. So Jesus offered salvation to the rich young ruler, and he did not take it. He rejected it. But Zacchaeus is different. Zacchaeus learns that Jesus is coming to town, and he's very eager to see him. And so he goes out of his way to be able to see Jesus and encounter him because he wanted what Jesus offered. But he was too short to see over the crowd. And that's what's funny about this story. He humbles himself and he does something very undignified. Um, he, he climbs up a tree to be able to get a look at Jesus as he came by. He, that was a, he made a fool of himself. He, he did something that would have been really embarrassing to do. 
I mean, rich men don't degrade themselves in this way. I mean, if you're a, if you're a rich man, especially a rich man who's hated, um, you're not going to go out of your way to do something that would be embarrassing. Except in this case, he did. This rich man humbled himself. I mean, could you imagine Elon Musk being, you know, wanting to see something? He's like, well, I can't see. Well, here, I'll just climb up a tree. It's like, no, of course, he's rich. He could just use his clout and influence just to say, no, everybody needs to accommodate me. The crowd must part so I could see. You would expect a rich man to do that. But Zacchaeus, he didn't care. He, he didn't care to embarrass himself, to humble himself. He wanted to see Jesus. All right. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. So do you know anybody famous? I do. Do you have any personal acquaintances that are famous? I happen to have one. I'll name drop here, but Michael W. Smith is my first cousin. I kid you not. Michael W. Smith is my first cousin. Uh, we can do a Q&A afterwards if you want to know any more information. So many stories from my childhood. Uh, whenever I was a kid, we would, um, I went to his house in Nashville, and I geeked out over all of his keyboards and music equipment there, and I got to play around on it and f- fell in love with all of his gear. Um, and then, you know, it was a couple times he was at my house, and I would... One time he was in my house and I showed him some of my music equipment, this little Casio keyboard. It was like this big and playing these little rinky-dink songs. And he, was, he indulged me. He was like, oh, man, that's really sweet. It's got, a really, it's, it's got a really hip sound, you know. It's like he acted like it was cool. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's, it's cheesy. And whenever we'd go to concerts, uh, I've seen him in concert many times, and we would always get backstage passes. Laura and I, we took Judah when he was a baby. We got to see him at a Christmas conference, or conference, Christmas concert down at the Aronoff. Um, it was, was it, I guess it would have been 2010, Chris, was it that year? Yeah, 2010 at Christmas concert down at the Aronoff. Uh, and we had backstage passes, and, you know, he came out and, you know, he talked to us for a little bit before the show. Um, and of course, you, you, you know somebody famous like that, it makes you feel important, doesn't it? I mean, it's like you, I, I remember whenever I would, when I've seen him in concert in the past, I would, I've been backstage whenever I was younger, and uh, I knew all the songs, and I played music, and could play a lot of the songs, and I would just kind of have these little fleeting moments as a kid when I would daydream, like, what if he said, Michael Clary, come on up here. Let's have you play this song for us. I'm like, who, me? Are you talking to me? Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's like, these are the sort of things I would think about as a kid. But it's like, I've, it, whenever somebody important knows your name and sees you and points you out, it's like, it's a really thrilling feeling. And that's kind of what happened to Zacchaeus here. I mean, we don't know any backstory. We don't, um, I mean, it says he wanted to see who Jesus was. So, Zacchaeus, we don't have any indication that he'd ever met Jesus before, that there's any sort of prior acquaintance, right? He, he wanted to see who he was. That's why he climbed up in a tree, because he wanted to see who this guy was when he came through town. But whenever Jesus came rolling into town, he came right to the tree, and he just stopped, looked up, and said, Zacchaeus, come down here. I'm going to stay at your house today. I mean, that was... That must have been a mind-blowing thing for Zacchaeus. When he said, I must stay, that implies a divine necessity. It's like, he must stay. It was, there was this imperative where Jesus said, I have to stay at your house. He was compelled to go and meet Zacchaeus. And it, it seems as if Jesus' whole purpose for being in Jericho was for this encounter. We don't know that. The text doesn't say it explicitly, but this, this imperative of Jesus to he must stay at Zacchaeus' house at least hints at the fact that it, that might be the whole reason why he was there to begin with. And so he wanted to bring salvation to his house. And whenever he said, I must stay at your house, Jesus is taking initiative towards him. 
So Zacchaeus is there to see him, but Jesus is the one that stopped, looked up, said his name, and said, come down, I'm going to stay in your house tonight. So this was Jesus moving towards him and taking the initiative. And it might seem weird in our culture for somebody to do that, to say, uh, you know, hey, I've never met you before, but you're going to invite me to dinner tonight, and I'm going to stay in your guest room tonight. I mean, we don't do that in our culture, but in, that, in this culture, it was an honor to be able to host somebody, to show hospitality. That was a really big deal to them. So Zacchaeus eagerly responded. It said he received him joyfully. He received him joyfully. There was this hurried, he came down and received him joyfully. That, that's, a, that's an eager response. That's a heartfelt, delighted response in, in responding to Jesus' um, his command. But the other naysayers, they were grumbling about it. And they grumbled uh, because they thought Jesus picked the wrong guy. Jesus should have picked, you know, some dignitary, some official, some, you know, chief rabbi or something like that. You don't go and, and find the most sinister villain in town, this chief tax collector, and stay at his place. But Jesus doesn't care about convention, right? Jesus does what Jesus wanted, wants to do because he's God, and that's what he did. He, he went and stayed at Zacchaeus's house. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. I want to make a little note here. That's present tense. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Again, that's present tense. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. When he says, half of my goods I give to you, he's not talking about future income. He's not saying, I've made myself rich on defrauding people and being a scoundrel tax collector. He says, I give which the goods that I own, the stuff in my house now, I'm going to have to go home and I'm going to have to take half of my property and I'm going to have to liquidate my assets and distribute it to the poor. That's a present action. That's not something I commit henceforth to give half. It's like, no, I'm doing this now. So it's a present action. He said, if I've defrauded anyone, then I'll make restitution. That's what the Old Testament law required. If somebody defrauded someone, um, then they required restitution. And again, he restored it. That's present tense. And so he's announcing an act of repentance. He's saying, I'm going to make right what I've done wrong. His repentance is swift and it's decisive. And Jesus, hearing what he said, declares, today salvation has come to this house. He's saying, this man is saved, right? This man has entered the kingdom. This man is now a, he's become a Christian. He's converted, and Jesus said it such that all the naysayers and the grumblers would hear it. And then he said it comes to this house, which indicates that the members of the house would follow the lead of the head of the house, which is Zacchaeus. So presumably wife, children, anybody else who was part of his household um, would have followed his lead and they would have, the whole household would have been converted uh, through this one this one act of grace towards Zacchaeus, the other people would have followed suit and followed his lead. And then Jesus says here at the end, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So that is a, that is a bit of a categorical statement. It's a statement of mission. It's a statement of purpose. And Jesus is giving what we could say is a bit of a mission statement. He came to seek and to save the lost. So Zacchaeus is a lost man. And Jesus sought him, and he found him, and he saved him. Now, for the rest of our time, I want to unpack this idea using the story of Zacchaeus to illustrate some, some concepts here about uh, Jesus' mission, like what God does in saving sinners, and then how we receive that salvation. Or you could say it this way, I want to talk about how God is all in 
on saving sinners. So we'll just look at two points here. Number one, what Jesus does to seek and save the lost. And number two, how sinners receive God's gift of salvation. That's where we're going for the rest of our time. So the first point we'll we'll start with is here. What Jesus does to seek and save the lost. God is all in when it comes to saving sinners. Jesus states it here. He says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, but it's not as though this is his independent mission that is separate from the desire of the Father and the involvement of the Spirit. God is all in. There are not they're not divergent wills within the Trinity. I mean, God is, God is of one mind. He is, he is a, a, a being that is not divided. And so when Jesus says he came to seek and to save the lost, he's not doing that independent of the Father and the Spirit. God is all in. The whole Trinity is involved. And I want to show you that um, through some scripture here. So the, uh, just talking about the Father, Son, and the Spirit, the Father draws people to himself. The Father draws people to himself. And so the teaching in Scripture is that God the Father has chosen for himself a people that he would save. And he saves them and he forgives them and he adopts them into his family. We see this taught in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 3 through 6. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what everything we're going to be saying in this paragraph is something that is statements about God the Father. So God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he, the Father, chose us in him, in Christ. So here's the Father. I lost my note here. He chose us. Come back. <laughs> Even as he chose Okay. Come on now. It's my left-handed thing going. He chose us. There we go. So he is the Father. Chose us in him, which is Jesus Christ. So the Father chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. We'll get to this in a moment, but that's, that's the end game. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. This is the Father's work. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So we see Paul is opening his letter to the Ephesians by saying, this is something God the Father has done, and this is a 30,000 foot, well, even further than that, like, this is like at the highest possible level, a, a look down upon all of redemptive history, and Paul is saying, this is what God has been doing from the beginning. God, the eternal Father, knowing that there would be, a, the human race would rebel against him, God, uh, he blessed us in Christ even before the world was created, And God looked upon a people and said, I'm going to save them. He chose us before the foundation of the world, and not just to save us, but to transform us. So he chose us in him that we should be, we should be holy and blameless. So he chose us not merely to save us, but to complete the work of salvation, which is to sanctify us, to grow us, to lead us in repentance. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ. And this is all according to the purpose of his will. So this is, this is God's plan from, from the, the, the biggest wide-angle lens. Jesus says something similar. In John chapter 6, verse 44, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So Jesus is saying that that salvation is a work of God. Salvation is something that God does because he, the Father, has 
chosen for himself a people. Before the foundation of the world, every person who would ever be saved was written and known by God, and he loved them in advance. And he said, I'm going to save them. I'm going to redeem them. And Jesus said, even in his own ministry in the book of John, nobody can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. So that is, that is uh, the work of the Father. Now, the work of the Son, Jesus said in Luke 19, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So the Father, wanting to save a people, sends the Son, and the Son, being sent by the Father, came to seek and to save the lost. The mission of Christ was given him by the Father. So here's, here's uh, one verse about that. 1 John 4.14, 4, he says, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And of course, many of you probably already know John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave or sent, you could say, his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So the father, wanting to rescue for himself a people, sends the son. And Jesus, being obedient to the father's will, accomplished just that, and he mentioned it in Luke 19. The son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, the, the Holy Spirit... The work of the Holy Spirit is done within us. The Holy Spirit regenerates. The Holy Spirit gives life. The Holy Spirit births. This, the, the new birth happens within a person's heart by the Holy Spirit. So the Father draws people. The Father has elected people to himself. The Holy Spirit does the work of, of enlightening them, of enabling them to see Jesus such that whenever Christ is presented to them, they recognize their Savior. And so the Holy Spirit gives life. He regenerates. He leads people. And every true Christian has received the gift of the Holy Spirit. So they're regenerated. They've been given new life. So the verse I just read, John, 1 John 4, 14, if we just hit reverse and go back one verse, this is the verse prior. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his Spirit. So every Christian, every Christian has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. The new birth has happened within your heart, and because of that new birth, you've been, you recognize your Savior. Um, some theologians will say, like, regeneration precedes faith, meaning that the Holy Spirit has to do a work within you, and then because of the work the Holy Spirit has done within you, then you're able to recognize your Savior, Right? Here's another one. This is Jesus speaking in John chapter 6. And in this text here, some of these threads are tied together in Jesus' teaching here. Jesus said, it is the Spirit who gives life. So here's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. So apart from the work of the Spirit, your flesh will never recognize Jesus as your Savior. It's not something that human eyes is able to comprehend. It is only through the eyes of the Spirit working within a human being, that anybody can ever become a Christian. So it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. So the flesh is no good. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So for those that the Spirit is at work within, when they hear the words of their master, the Spirit within them says, yes, that's true. Yes, that's my Savior. And you respond in faith. But Jesus goes on to say, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. So even Jesus, during his earthly ministry, he had, he had a sense, or more than a sense, of who actually would be converted and become disciples and who would not. And Jesus was able to speak and go about his ministry knowing who it is that would believe in him and follow him and who would not believe in him and not follow him and even who would betray him. And then finally, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So same thing that we read earlier, nobody can come to Christ unless the Father draws them. And the way the Father draws them is through the agency of the Spirit enabling that person to see Christ because they've been given new life. So if we were to sum up, God is all in on saving sinners. This is a, 
this is a combined effort of the members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, working in tandem to bring salvation and conversion to God's people. So we could summarize it by saying, the Father draws people to himself, the Son seeks and saves them, and the Spirit regenerates and leads them. Regenerate, so uh, Genesis is a, is a beginning, it's a life, and so the Spirit regenerates. That's a theological word, it means new birth, or born again, regenerate. So if you generate something, you do it once. If you regenerate something, you do it a second time. The Holy Spirit brings new birth, uh, new life, born again, right? Okay. So that's what God does. God is all in. God does the work. It is completely start to finish a work of God in saving sinners. There's nothing that we contribute to our salvation except for the sin that made it necessary. That's a quote from Jonathan Edwards. But we don't contribute to our salvation at all. So what is our part? What do we do? Sinners receive God's gift of salvation, and salvation is received by grace through faith. Salvation is received by grace through faith. So grace is, uh, is a free gift. That's the word, or what the word grace means. It, it is a, like gratis. It's, it's something free. It's, it's, it's something that is unearned. We don't earn salvation. We don't contribute to salvation. It is something God gives to us freely. It is his work. Faith is a complete reliance on God and trusting that it's not up to us. It's, it's, it's casting our, our belief wholeheartedly on Jesus and saying, this is his work. This is his work in me. I don't contribute to it. So I believe what he has done, and that is faith. So it's a complete trust and reliance on God and a commitment of the heart to, to really live that out. One of the most well-known texts that teaches this concept is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, for by grace you have been saved. So grace is the gift. You didn't do anything. By grace you have been saved. Well, how? Well, through faith, meaning Faith is not a work that you perform. Faith is a belief that we relinquish all of our works. We forsake all of our works knowing that salvation is completely a work of God. So by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Let me just make sure we see that. It is the gift of God. But wait a minute, is it a result of works? No, not a result of works. So that no one may boast. What does he mean by boast? Boasting is what someone would do. It's like if, you ever say, if anybody says, you know, well, how would, I know, how would you know if you would go to heaven when you die? Or how would anybody know if they go to heaven when they die? What do people say? Well, well, you know, somebody tell me, what would they say? I'm a good person. Oh, really? Tell me how good you are. Well, I do this, I do this, and I do this, and I do that. Okay, so you're boasting. You're saying, here are my good works, and because I'm a good person, I have earned my place in heaven. Paul says, no, a person who thinks they are saved because they're a good person, is, that person is not saved because they're, they're trying to earn their own way, and they're not, they don't have faith in the gift of God and the grace of God. Their faith is in themselves. Anybody that says, I'm saved and I'll go to heaven because I'm a good person, trusts in themselves for salvation, and that person is not saved because no one is righteous before God, Romans 3.23. Now, Luke 19, story of Zacchaeus. We see indicators of Zacchaeus' faith throughout the story, and he had a receptive posture to Jesus, and that's what I want to highlight to you. Verse 3 says he was seeking to see who Jesus was. Now, that seeking is not something that is a good work that he performed. That seeking is something that the Holy Spirit had born within him. He was a child of Abraham. He was, he was part of the Israelite religion. And so there was already a, a work of the Spirit of God within him, having learned of his religious tradition. And having learned of that, he was already seeking, having heard of Jesus. He had heard of Jesus, and he was like, I want that. I desire that. So he was seeking to know who Jesus was. And then it says he ran on ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree. So he was not saved by that good work of 
working real hard to try to find Jesus. No, it's like the work was already done within him by the Spirit, but he went out and in his eagerness to see his Savior, the one who saved him by grace through faith, he went and saw and sought out who Jesus was. His behavior is kind of embarrassing. That's what makes the story funny and memorable. But to Zacchaeus, losing dignity is nothing. He, he, he has nothing to offer. He's not impressed with himself. In fact, he knows he's a sinner. So there's no, it, losing the dignity is nothing compared to gaining Christ. To see Jesus and to find Jesus and to receive salvation, that's what he's after. And of course, this story takes place before the crucifixion and the resurrection. But when Jesus declared salvation has come to this house, that means that Zacchaeus knew who the Savior was. And of course, when Christ died and when Christ rose again, Zacchaeus' faith would be more complete with that information when he, under, when he heard more of, the, of what Christ has done. But he was in. He was a, he was a follower of Jesus. So now, no doubt he would go on to believe in those things. Zacchaeus did not receive salvation because of his works. He received it purely by faith. He didn't earn it. All he did was joyfully receive it. And so it's important to recognize that when Jesus said, Zacchaeus, come down, Jesus took the initiative to him. Jesus called him out by name. Hey, you guy, come down here. I'm staying in your house. Jesus took the initiative, sought him out, and all Zacchaeus did was receive it joyfully. Yes, I'll do that. I'm excited. Come on over to my house, Jesus. And then afterwards, he started to talk about what he was going to do and what he was already in the process of doing because of the salvation he had received. I want to I give half of my goods away. If I've defrauded anybody, I want to make it right. I'll restore it fourfold. So the same with us. We are saved purely by the work of God. The Father drew Zacchaeus. Jesus sought him and saved him. The Holy Spirit gave him life. And from start to finish, all of this is a work of God. God gets the glory as the merciful and benevolent Father. Now, there's another aspect of this, which is what happens then? So everything we've talked about so far is all about the the salvation that is all a work of God what happens after that? And so the second part of this, this, what we do in response to the salvation is, is that there is repentance and good works. So true saving faith always includes repentance. It always includes good works. Faith begins in the heart. That's salvation. The Holy Spirit does that. But the salvation that the Holy Spirit gives us works its way out into our lives. So repentance, the word repentance simply means turn away from. Literally, it's like just turn and go the other way. And there's a turn away from sin and there's a turn towards God. So repentance is a manifestation of life change. So people can change in the natural way, not as the result of faith. So if you got a bad habit, if you quit smoking, you want to work on your character, you want to eat healthy, lose weight. Um, you, you can do those things apart from faith in Jesus. I mean, people can do that. They can turn away from things, but it's that those good things have no saving effect on their own. You can't stand before Christ on the judgment day someday and say, well, I quit smoking and, you know, uh, you know I trimmed down and I exercised and, you know, it was nice to people. It's like you can do works that would be you know, could be considered consistent with Christian repentance, but without explicit faith in Jesus Christ, knowing that he is the Savior and the salvation is all of him, those, that, those good works don't really mean anything in terms of your salvation. So what I'm talking about here with Zacchaeus, it's repentance for the sake of Christ. Repentance as a heart response to the salvation that we've received. Repentance as the fruit of faith. Repentance that is led by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, having given us new life, convicts us of sin. The Holy Spirit shows us this is an area where you're out of step with God's character. Here's something you need to repent of. Here is an opportunity to do a good work of obedience, to, to, to do some, some act of, of obedience to Christ. The Holy Spirit always points us to greater godliness. And of course, it doesn't happen all at once. So nobody is saved and then sanctified completely 
Sanctification is a lifelong process where little by little, day by day, there are, there are changes that the Holy Spirit brings about in your life. Earlier on in a person's faith, those changes could be big, obvious areas. So people that are newer Christians, a lot of times they have pretty big things that they need to work on right away. But then as a person grows in Christian maturity, a lot of those big things are addressed and dealt with, and then some of the more subtle things that are much more difficult to deal with. Fear of man, anger, self-righteousness, selfishness, pride, envy. Those inner heart things, the Holy Spirit works on those, and those things take a lifetime to work out. But it is always the Holy Spirit continuing the work of salvation that he began in you because he chose you before the foundation of the world to present you holy and blameless. That work of salvation begins when God chose you before the foundation of the world, then he saves you at your moment of conversion, and then he keeps progressing you towards being holy and blameless, that sanctification that takes place over the rest of your life. So Zacchaeus had indicators of faith earlier in his story, right? He wanted to see Jesus. He wanted to get a look at him, so he climbed up a sycamore tree to see Christ. But then you see that there was a real heart change whenever he gets to the repentance and good works part. So in verse 8, he said, the half of my goods I give to the poor. Let me just imagine even somebody that's rich. Going home, and I'm like, all right, half of this stuff has got to go. Half of my bank account, half of my retirement account. Half of all the belongings in this house. It's all got to go. I got to liquidate it, have a big garage sale in the neighborhood, and then take a bucket of cash and drop it off at the city mission. That's what Zacchaeus did. The work of God in him was so radical that... He, he, had, he had no problem doing it because he had gained a greater treasure. And then he said, if I find any, I guess he would audit his books, who knows. But he said, if I've defrauded anybody, I want to make restitution for that fourfold. So if I've, if I've cheated you out a dollar, I want to pay you four. That's what he's going to do. Now, that repentance was not the reason. It's not as though the repentance is what saves him. The repentance is the evidence that he had already been saved by a work of the Spirit that God had done in his life. So the repentance was the outworking of his salvation. The repentance was like the seal of authenticity of his faith, that a true work of God had occurred in his life. The rich young ruler's lack of repentance reveals that his outward piety was just self-driven effort, not a work of God. But Zacchaeus' faith was a humble faith indicated by his joy at seeing Christ receiving him gladly and then his open repentance. So the point is this. Any kind of faith that does not produce repentance in your life and does not produce good works in your life isn't real faith. The outworking is key. Repentance is where your faith actually does something in your life. It changes you. Let me give you a couple of scriptures about this. This is James chapter 2, verses 14 and 17. And James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? It's a rhetorical question, but the answer is no. Now, some people have a hard time with this, with this text because it seems as though James is advocating works salvation. That's not what he's doing. James is talking about works that is an indicator of saving faith. So if a person says they have faith, but that's, it's just words, it's just something they say, if it doesn't produce some change in their life, then you can say, well, that's not real faith. That's just an intellectual assent. And so he goes on. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's a dead faith. It means that that faith was not a genuine trust in God because it's, it's, it's just words. The works that James is talking about here is the flip side of repentance. Repentance and good works are two sides of the same coin. You repent of bad things 
that you shouldn't have done, and good works are good things that you want to do. Both are a continuum or a spectrum of obedience. You, your spectrum of obedience includes all the things from bad things you shouldn't do and good things that you ought to do or could do. But all of these things are, are, are good works, repentance, and good works are two sides of the same coin, and that's what James is talking about here. The point is that James is saying faith does something in your life. It's not just empty words, but it's a transformation. And so without repentance and good works, faith is simply head knowledge. It's not real. So I heard this story. Um, I've heard it before, but I was reminded of it this week, and I was like, i got to share this today. There's a um, famous incident where there was a tightrope that was stretched from across Niagara Falls from the United States side to the Canada side, and the total length was about a quarter of a mile. And there's a man named Charles Blondin. He walked across it. It's about uh, 160 feet above the falls. So if you fall down, uh, you're toast. And so he, he, he walked across this tightrope tight a couple times. And then he did it again like in like a, a sack, <laughs> like a potato sack. And then he did it again on stilts. And then he did it again on a bicycle. And then he did it again pushing a wheelbarrow. And then after all this, the crowd, I mean, they're like ooh and and on, and they're all impressed with him. And then he was like, does anybody doubt that I could do this again with the wheelbarrow loaded down with heavy weight? And everybody's like, oh, you can totally do it. He goes, does anybody believe I can do it? And everybody's enthusiastic. Yes, you can do it. Yes, you can do it. And so he looks at a man that is very enthusiastically saying he can do it. And he goes, great, you, sir, come up here, get into this wheelbarrow, and I'll push you across. And the guy didn't do it. Why didn't he? Because Charles Blondin was looking for real faith, faith that required a commitment, faith that would cost him something that could be demonstrated in a commitment of his life. And the man's like, well, I, I can intellectually ascend, but... But if it costs me something, I can't put my life in your hands like that. That's what, that is the definition of faith according to Scripture. Faith is never, never mere intellectual assent. Faith is always a commitment of the life. So we, until your faith is made personal, you act on it, you repent of sin, you obey Christ with your life, until you act on it, it's just an empty exercise. It has to manifest in your life. So what we do is we try to separate belief from action. We try to separate what we believe from how we live and what we do and how we act. And so at our church, this is a conviction that we cannot separate these things. That's why our mission statement is to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. Those three words, know, love, and obey, those three things are faith. They're, they're, they're indistinct, they're, that you can't separate them, you can't pull them apart. I used to think that if you wanted to know what a church believes, I'd say, well, go to their website, read their statement of faith. And I'd say, oh, this church, you know, believes X, Y, Z, you know, this, but then Let's say a church says, you know, we believe that salvation is purely a work of God, start to finish. But then the practice of the church is all sorts of gimmicks and kind of tricks to manipulate people and strong arm them into making faith commitments. Well, then you'd have to say, well, they don't really believe what they say they believe. They don't believe salvation is a work of God because they're relying on human pragmatic tools to reach people for Christ rather than the, the means God has appointed in his word. So we can't separate our faith from our action. What Zacchaeus shows us and what Jesus affirms is that the fruit and the root of the Christian life, the root is the faith, and the fruit, where it le where, what that faith produces is repentance and good works. So in, a, in America, evangelicalism, we've got this tradition of the sinner's prayer, right? And I'm, I'm not denouncing that because we use it. It's like we use like it is prayer is a great expression of initial faith in Christ. So that's fine. But there's an assumption a lot of times that praying a sinner's prayer is like a magical incantation. That if you say these words, something magical and spiritual happens in your life. 
And then a lot of people will, will believe that because they prayed a prayer at some point in their past, like, well, I'm good to go. Me and Jesus, we're tight. We're square. I haven't been to church in years, and I haven't prayed or read my Bible. But me and Jesus, we're great because I prayed that prayer one time. That's, that's, a, that's, that's not living faith. That is, a, that is a, a, a fraudulent faith. So if a person says they prayed a sinner's prayer and assume they're saved, I would say, well, they might be saved. But the indicator, the evidence of, of salvation is going to be repentance and good works. It's going to be some change that says their faith produced something in their life. And that's when it's much more certain that a person is saved. Once it costs you something, once you persevere through difficulty with your faith, that's when you know that there is a much more, much more evidence of a genuine work of God there. So my concern is that we've got a generation of Christians that don't believe repentance is necessary. And so we have a generation of many false converts because they've reduced faith to the inner realm, the inner heart religion. That's all it is. It has no bearing on the rest of your life. And if it doesn't bear out on the rest of your life, that's not Christianity. So if a person indicates in some way that they can't or they won't repent, then at the very least, that's, that's a good cause to question, is that person truly converted? It's not just what they say, because a lot of people will tell you they're Christians, but it's not until there is an evidence of it, demonstrated by repentance of bad things and, and evidence of good works, of obedience in their life, that's when you know that there's more, much more likely chance that a, a good, genuine work of God has happened. So I'll read you one more scripture that teaches this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. We already read this part. So like this, this here is the grace through faith part, right? So we've already done this. But I want to go ahead and connect the next verse. So when Paul goes all in on this saved by grace through faith thing. So it's not a gift, it's not, or it's not a, a work that you do. It's all a gift of God. And then he goes on, verse 10, says, we are his workmanship. Even though you're saved by grace through faith, you don't contribute anything to your salvation. Nevertheless, those who are saved... You are his workmanship, created, which we could say recreated in Christ Jesus, because we're reborn, right? Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Interesting, he says prepared beforehand, because isn't that where election began? Before the foundation of the world. So before the foundation of the world, God not only chose you to save you, God also presented before you this vast menu of all kinds of good works that you could do as a response to and the fruit of the faith and salvation that you've received. So repentance and good works, it's the continuation of what God began at the beginning, and it's all a gift. A change at the root always produces a change at the fruit. And it's all prepared in advance by God. God does it start to finish. It's all work of him, but we walk in it. We walk in it. So as we conclude here, I just, uh, Christians, I want you to consider something. The Father drew you to him. Jesus saved you. He sought you. The Holy Spirit gave you life and is leading you. And that new life of the Spirit, it's not simply an inner heart religion, but it's the first step towards complete and total transformation that will take place for the rest of your life and then will, there will be even further transformation that will take place throughout eternity. And the same faith that saved you at the beginning is the faith that transforms you every day for the rest of your life and on into eternity, day by day. And so now, somewhere between when we were first saved and going home to eternity, there's all of these good works of repentance and good works. There's all of these steps of obedience that, that God has prepared for us. So how are you walking in them? There's going to be some areas to repent of, some sin that you need to, to deal with and take before the Lord and surrender them to Christ. And there's also good works, good works for you to do. Zacchaeus, his good works was turning the sin of greed into generosity. 
For you, it could be turning the sin of laziness into hard work. It could be turning the sin of cowardice into courage. I mean, I could go on and on. It could be any number of things. But for all of us, we can't stand on the shore saying, yeah, you can, you can push that wheelbarrow across, Jesus, but never get in the wheelbarrow and trust him with your life. That's faith without works. So in one way or another, in big ways and in small ways, we all have to have enough faith to get in the wheelbarrow and to say, Jesus, take me where you want me to go. Lead me. And that's the challenge. That's the challenge for you to pray and to consider what getting in the wheelbarrow would look like for you. You've trusted Jesus for your salvation. Now, what is God calling you to do with it? And will you do it? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you that before the foundation of the world, you knew our name. You knew Zacchaeus' name. And Zacchaeus is one among many, many others that you specifically and explicitly came to seek and to save. Lost people who would give their lives to Christ, be saved by faith through no effort of our own, and be transformed in every part of our life. We thank you, Jesus. You did that work. You, you, you accomplished it through your death, burial, and resurrection. Holy Spirit, we ask that you will move among us. I ask you to lead us, show us what repentance of sin will look like for every person here, and show us what good works you would lay before us to walk in and obey. But Lord, I pray for everyone here that there is a step of faith before us that you will make that clear what it is that we would do next in our life. And we thank you, Jesus. You, you are the God who feeds us now as we come to the table. So meet us there. Bless us. Encourage us. Build up your people. We ask in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.